Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in, in downtown, downtown Minneapolis. Minneapolis. My, My name, name is, is Daniel Dan Little, acting moderator of the Town Hall Forum. The theme of the Town Hall Forum is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today's speaker is, is Ms. Ms. Rita, Rita Dove, one, one of the best, best honored poets of the late 20th century. Her distinct and rich writing style, heavily influenced by her African-American roots, has brought her national and international accolades. Her poetry was heard during the Atlanta Centennial Cultural Olympics in July 1996 as the text for composer Alvin Singleton's work for orchestra and narrator Umoja, Each One of Us Counts. In 1993, the United States government recognized the talents of Rita Dove by appointing her Poet Laureate of the United States and consultant on poetry at the Library of Congress, making her the youngest person and the first African-American to receive this highest official honor in American letters. She held this position for two years. In October of that same year, Rita Dove read her poem, Lady Freedom Among Us, at the ceremony commemorating the 200th anniversary of the United States Capitol and celebrating the restoration of the Freedom Statue on the Capitol's dome. She was also the recipient of a 1996 Charles Frankel Prize, the U.S. government's highest honor for writers and scholars in the humanities. Her extensive list of honors and awards includes the greatest the Great American Award, Artists Award from the NAACP, the Folger Shakespeare Library's Renaissance Forum Award for Leadership in the Literary Arts, and the 1996 Heinz Award in the Arts and Humanities, one of the largest individual achievement prizes in the world. Her work has been supported by fellowships from the NEA, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the National Humanities Center. The recipient of 14 honorary doctorates from colleges and universities throughout this country, Ms. Dove currently holds a chair as Commonwealth Professor of English at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming to this town hall forum, Rita Dove, Poet Laureate. Thank you. Thank you. Today, I thought I would share with you the genesis of a poem. What I'd like to do is to talk with you about how one particular poem came into being. And uh, I'm going to take you through several drafts of this poem. But first, I'd like to start by saying that the, this poem was different from many other poems that I write because I think a poet often begins with an emotion or a line and proceeds from there. With this poem, it began with a fact. For me, part of the trick to writing poems is to pretend that poetry is the last thing on my mind. The faintest whiff of self-consciousness, the slightest touch of that dread word portent, portent, and the poem scampers away like a spooked deer. 
And so the task of describing how this one poem came to be snared on the page is a mission that's charged both with equivocation and doomed to partial failure. I can proceed with anecdote and allegory at best and try to lead you through the course of the creative journey by insinuation and examples. It began one Saturday in 1980. I was sitting with other writers in a bookshop in West Berlin when a book on the opposite side of the room caught my eye. I might not have noticed this book if I hadn't been slightly bored by the literary gossip of the group, many of whom had been meeting for brunch every Saturday for years. And actually, this brunch consisted of nothing more than champagne and strong coffee, laced with the strains, the pungent strains of chain-smoked, unfiltered cigarettes. So gasping for fresh air, I got up and crossed the room. The book was an oversized one, displayed at hip level on a shelf of art books. I was intrigued not only by its striking coloration, brilliant green on white, but by its peculiar title as well. The title was Petazilia, which is German for parsley. What could a book with such a title possibly be about? The author was a respected German novelist by the name of Hubert Fichte, and the book was studded with photographs of palm trees and of tanks. The accompanying text chronicled the atrocities committed during the reign of General Rafael Trujillo, longtime dictator of the Dominican Republic. And that title, well, on the frontispiece, finally, I found Fichte's laconic explanation. On October 2nd, 1937, Trujillo had ordered 20,000 Haitian blacks who worked in the cane fields executed because they could not roll the R in perejil, the Spanish word for parsley. That was it. No further explanation of why the general chose this particular word or what the Haitians were doing in the Dominican Republic in the first place. No mention of the French Creole that the Haitians spoke, which rendered their R's softly guttural, incapable of fluttering at the tip of the tongue. No description of the kind of execution, what was used, and how quickly the terror proceeded. No clue to the general state of mind at that time. Just the bald facts, 20,000 dead over one word. I jotted this into my notebook. I had no intention of writing a poem on the subject. The magnitude of the horror, coupled with a graduate school-acquired dislike of political poetry, frightened me off. But I do have one rule concerning anything that I put in my notebook, and it is this. No matter how arcane or silly or scary or unsuitable an event or a detail might be, if it can stop me in my tracks, it goes into the notebook, no questions asked. Each time I stumbled onto this entry during the next few months, I was troubled anew. I simply could not skip over the story and forget about it. The sheer inventiveness of the cruelty, the supple brilliance of the deed stunned me. I had always felt that evil was some monstrous but essentially alien power. I had not counted on evil being 
interesting, and creative. And since I could not reconcile these notions with my perception of the world, I knew that I needed first to double check Hubert Fichte's scholarship. It took me a while, finally, but I found corroboration of the Parsley Massacre in an American historical text. And now that I knew that the in incident was undeniably true, I realized that I had to confront it poetically in order to put it to rest in my mind. But how? For once, I had the facts before starting the poem. I was not imagining a dramatic situation or recasting a personal memory into imagery. This was as real as it could get. How could I grasp something this big, this monstrous? Well, by going back to the beginning and by starting small. I remembered what first attracted me to Fichte's book, its colors, white and green. Not Kelly or pea or Nile or lime green, but that elemental vegetal hue cut with a bit of sunlight. What else was parsley green? Not grass, actually, not leaves. I found myself looking everywhere for that color. And more than a year after my first notebook entry, I found, finally found it. It was by now, 1981. I was living in Arizona a month or so into my first full-time university teaching position. Friends had invited us to a picnic on the Pima Indian Reservation just south of Phoenix, and it was while sitting in Betty Perez's trailer waiting for the ice chests to be loaded into the back of the pickup that I looked at their pet parrot and found among the red-tipped wings that precise green. Betty's parrot was amazing. It could imitate anyone and anything. It imitated other birds, water dripping from the faucet, the slam of a screen door. Suddenly a line floated into my head. The parrot imitated spring. That was the line. I went to the bathroom and wrote it down in my notebook. I won't write in front of people. I'll always do it discreetly. I also wrote down the equation parrot equals parsley green. I had no idea what to do with that, so I shut the notebook, joined the picnic, and waited. Waited for fate to call. Now, I don't believe in divine intervention or anything like that when it comes to writing poems. I merely hope that if I kept my eyes and ears open, that the details would gradually accrue, which would help me find my way into the poem. Whether I was up to the challenge of writing that poem in the end remained to be seen. First, though, I had to discover the hinge that would swing open the door onto its psychic landscape. I entered the world of the poem through color, and then through the image of a parrot imitating spring for itself. Later that weekend, a flurry of free association exercises produced a few more possibilities, which I shaped into a rather shabby silhouette. And I'll read you um, the first draft of this poem. The parrot imitated spring. It was as green as parsley. El General rehearsed it all morning until he even heard the swish of eucalyptus. He'd been once to Italy. He was an average man in average shoes, no boots, no whip. In fact, he even bit his thumb when he wasn't thinking. He favored inspiration, pale starred petals shattered on a rough pine box, grit and scintillance. 
that was it. This was a kind of a writing without thinking about punctuation or, or sense or anything like that. And except for a half-hearted attempt to humanize the dictator, this version really delivered nada. <laughs> Nothing but a few ill-conceived images of coffins and military boots and a rather predictable mix, I think, of beauty and gore. I was looking over my own shoulder while I was writing. In the margins, I scribbled notes to myself like, ignore the facts, and too pretty, and the curt reprimand, verbs, because there weren't enough verbs in it. Then I paper clipped these drafts together, which I, write, I always write for ballpoint pen on college-ruled notebook paper, and then I put them in the desk drawer for a while. About once a week, I'd leaf through the poem fragments in that drawer, each time trying to continue but failing. I began to then obsess on another question of fact. My opening line by this time had developed into, there is a parrot imitating spring in the palace, which I thought had a nice musical lilt to it. But then I was stumped again. Were there totally green parrots? I could not continue until I knew for sure. I scoured the library stacks and skimmed enough ornithological texts to satisfy a lifetime of bird watching, but no green parrot could I find. There were blue-black minas and blue-gold macaws, there were yellow-fronted Amazons and even the green and violet imperial parrots native to Dominica, but no pure green parrot far and wide. Then came one of those moments you dare not dream of. One afternoon before my creative writing class, a student called my office. She was in downtown Phoenix, stuck at a pet shop where she worked because the store owner was late and the new parrot could not be left alone in the shop. And she asked if she could bring the parrot to class. <laughs> he's, he's very well behaved, she assured me. Of course you can bring him, I replied, but there is one catch. Well, that parrot was a perfect gentle bird. He paraded up and down the length of the conference table, occasionally picking up a stray pencil and depositing it before the student, and the class was enchanted. A couple of days later, the trainer student called to report that she had done her part of the bargain and had checked into the existence of green parrots, and indeed, there was such a species in Australia, which was entirely deliciously parsley green. Yeah. <laughs> Great, I said, and thank you, I exclaimed. And then I immediately sunk into despair. Australia. How in the world was I going to get an Australian parrot into the Dominican Republic? What an extravagance that would have been. What a mad display of power. Most likely the parrot would have been shipped in an equally extravagant container, a cage of gold or even ivory. And then came another little draft. Just a few lines. The parrot, who has traveled all the way from Australia in an ivory cage, is coy as a widow, practicing spring. At this point, I dove into the soothing waters of further research, studying the geographical and climactic conditions of the Lesser Antilles, learning more than I'd ever hoped to, I'll need to know about the growing, growing and harvesting of sugarcane. Some of that newfound knowledge, such as the fact that gnawing sugarcane can erode your teeth into sharpened points, made it into the final version of the poem. 
but most of that research merely stoked the embers. In order not to be overwhelmed by the abomination of the actual historical event, I had latched onto the reassuring scaffolding of research and also form, deciding to use a very strict poetic form in order to get further into the poem. The first form I decided to try was a villanelle. I, a villanelle is a form which repeats, has two lines which keep repeating. Um, they alternate, um, and then there's always a line that does not repeat. And I wanted to use that form because I thought it would echo the repetitive horror of the execution, the idea that one person would come up, say the word, die, and then they'd call the next. So um, I began to work on this sestina, and I thought I'd read you a sestina, not my own, but another one, so you can hear the pattern. This is Dylan Thomas's sestina, do not go gentle, I mean, I'm sorry, Vill Villanelle, do not go gentle into that good night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day, rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. So you see the two sentences, two lines which repeat are, do not go gentle into that good night and rage, rage against the dying of the light. I also tried to, to do a sestina, which is a torture form. It is a six line stanza, which the end words are always the same, but they go in different orders. And it, um, there are about five or six stanzas and you have to keep ending each line on one of these words. I took certain keywords, parrot, spring, general, green, in order to build the skeleton of a sestina. While the villanelle part practically wrote itself, I already had the opening of one and a half lines, and since I was missing the conclusion of the middle line, I simply skipped to the third line, which then sprang almost full-blown from my pen without a bit of help from me. So here's how it began. There is a parrot imitating spring in the palace a big blank because I didn't know what the next part was. And the next line is, out of the swamp, the cane appears. After that, the Haitians began to speak for themselves, their terrifyingly gentle and patient whispers rising from the rain-soaked fields. After, f and I'll read you that right now. I'll read you the first part of the poem, which is the villanelle part. The poem is called Parsley, and the villanelle is called The Cane Fields. There is a parrot imitating spring in the palace, its feathers parsley green. Out of the swamp the cane appears to haunt us, and we cut it down. El General searches for a word. 
He is all the world there is. Like a parrot imitating spring, we lie down screaming as rain punches through and we come up green. We cannot speak an R. Out of the swamp, the cane appears and then the mountain we call in whispers, Catalina. The children gnaw their teeth to arrowheads. There is a parrot imitating spring. El General has found his word, Perahil, who says it lives. He laughs, teeth shining out of the swamp. The cane appears in our dreams, lashed by wind and streaming, and we lie down. For every drop of blood, there is a parrot imitating spring. Out of the swamp, the cane appears. That Villanelle took about five or six drafts to get it to that point. The Sestina, on the other hand, was rapidly turning into a disaster. I've never been able to write a decent Sestina, but I keep trying. So here, for the sake of humility, is an early draft of the Sestina. Who is singing in the palace? What is it that stands so green among the curtains? Out in the cane fields, the Haitians pause their knives. Spring is still half a world away. El General must be in love. Or is it a parrot that imitates the voice of a woman, a parrot who sings of love in the palace, whose world is a large brass ring? El General paces furious and bored. The green ribbon he wears in his lapel is a reminder of the spring his mother died, a simple soul with a cane who never learned Spanish, who gnawed on sugar cane in secret, who wept when he went out in crowds. The parrot was hers. It reminded him of spring, and yet he cannot bear to throw it out of the palace window and watch it flock, watch it flock a green bouquet out over the swamp. Furious, the general paces and so on ad nauseum. But embedded into this con convoluted narrative, this self-conscious array of semi-precious images, are several essential elements which were not there before. The general's mother comes in, her cane, and that green ribbon in his lapel. So I abandoned this Sestina and reread the Villanelle aloud to convince myself that it was enough. And then I typed it up and put it on my husband's desk for his no-nonsense prose writer's eye. He's a novelist, so I give it to him. He emerged from his study, head cocked slightly to one side, and I could tell that something was wrong. He handed back the page. I caught myself clenching my fists and tried unsuccessfully to fight down the belligerence which was rising to cover my frustration. It's beautiful, he paused. But that's not all, is there? What do you mean that's not all, I blurted. How can there be more? They're all dead. <laughs> yes, I know. Another pause. But don't tell me that's everything. I stomped back to my room, but I knew he was right. And he, dear man, let me stomp away. Years before, we had made a pact concerning the critiquing of each other's work. All tantrums and protests were not to be taken personally. The tantrum, the tantrum thrower, for his or her part, was never to resort to personal retorts, such as, what do you know? You're just a fiction writer or a poet. <laughs> and if either of these rules were ever violated, then we would stop critiquing each other's work. Well, time passed, and I was back to my weekly review of the poem, whose drafts were now numerous enough to earn their own red 
plastic folder. Now, I'll never be so arrogant as to pretend that I really know how a poem comes, finally comes into being, but I had just about resigned myself to failure with this one, when one evening, while alphabetizing the books in my study, I was very frustrated, <laughs> I muttered, to hell with poetry, took out my notebook, and began to write in prose. I was hunkered down next to the bookshelf, scribbling madly away until my aching knees forced me to continue at the desk. And this is part of that prose segment. The word the general's chosen is parsley, perahil. How he found it is, there's a blank, because I didn't know. It is spring when thoughts turn to love and death. And in the spring, the general thinks of his mother and death. How she died in the spring and her cane planted above the grave flowered each spring, its stolid four-piece blossoms. So the general pulled on his boots to make his thighs strong. He stomped to her room in the palace, the one with no curtains and a parrot and a brass ring, in parentheses, brought by boat all the way from Australia. <laughs> and he paced as he wondered, who can I kill today? And the little knot of screams in his throat is still for a moment. After that evening, as my father used to say, it was all over but the shouting. Oh, there were still revisions ahead, but I had cracked the barrier. Even though I had no idea how the poem was going to end, how I was going to explain the general's choice of that particular word, I wrote toward the ending I had to believe would be there, heartbreaking and inevitable, whenever I would be strong enough to meet it. And now I will read to you the entire poem, including the Villanelle again. Parsley, the cane fields. There is a parrot imitating spring in the palace, its feathers parsley green. Out of the swamp, the cane appears to haunt us, and we cut it down. El General searches for a word. He is all the world there is, like a parrot Imitating spring, we lie down screaming as rain punches through and we come up green. We cannot speak an R. Out of the swamp, the cane appears, and then the mountain we call in whispers, Catalina. The children gnaw their teeth to arrowheads. There is a parrot imitating spring. El General has found his word, Perahil, who says it lives. He laughs, teeth shining out of the swamp. The cane appears in our dreams, lashed by wind and streaming, and we lie down. For every drop of blood, there is a parrot imitating spring. Out of the swamp, the cane appears. The palace. The word the general's chosen is parsley. It is fall. When thoughts turn to love and death, the general thinks of his mother, how she died in the fall, and he planted her walking cane at the grave, and it flowered, each spring stolidly forming four star blossoms. The general pulls on his boots. He stomps to her room in the palace, the one without curtains, the one with a parrot in a brass ring. As he paces, he wonders, who can I kill today? And for a moment, the little knot of screams is still. The parrot, who has traveled all the way from Australia in an ivory cage, is coy as a widow 
practicing spring. Ever since the morning his mother collapsed in the kitchen while baking skull-shaped candies for the Day of the Dead, the general has hated sweets. He orders pastries brought up for the bird. They arrive dusted with sugar on a bed of lace. The knot in his throat starts to twitch. He sees his boots the first day in battle, splashed with mud and urine, as a soldier falls at his feet, amazed how stupid he looked at the sound of artillery. I never thought it would sing, the soldier said and died. Now the general sees the fields of sugar cane, lashed by rain and streaming. He sees his mother's smile, the teeth gnawed to arrowheads. He hears the Haitians sing without R's as they swing the great machetes. Catalina they sing, Catalina mi madre mi amor en muerte. God knows his mother was no stupid woman. She could roll an R like a queen. Even a parrot can roll an R. In the bare room, the bright feathers arch in a parody of greenery as the last pale crumbs disappear under the blackened tongue. Someone calls out his name in a voice so like his mother's. A startled tear splashes the tip of his right boot. My mother, my love in death. The general remembers the tiny green sprigs men of his village wore in their capes to honor the birth of a son. He will order many this time to be killed for a single beautiful word. Thank you. Thank you. And so, nearly two years after that first sighting in the bookstore, I returned to Hubert Fichte's title, the one which first pulled me away from that circle of chain-smoking writers, that spring day in Berlin. Petazilia, Perehil, Parsley, a single beautiful word. Thank you. You can tell by the reception that you have touched our hearts and our minds, and we thank you, Ms. Dove. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is one of the most honored poets of the late 20th century, Rita Dove, speaking on the poet's voice. Today's program is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. And now, while the ushers collect questions from the audience, those of you who are unable to stay for the question and answer period, please feel free to leave as you must. Ms. Dove, I have a question, and I was warned ahead of time that as the questions from the audience are coming forward, I will have a chance to ask it. So I'm going to move to that microphone, and you'll please come to this one, and I'll ask you a question. Your uh, sketch of your own life and beginning uh, as, uh, as an, an author, author and an, an avid, avid reader. reader. What, what would you, would you say, say to, to these, these children, children among whom surely is a future, future author? author? 
I know surely there are future authors among those children, and I imagine also some dormant authors among the older members here. The first thing that I would say is to read as much as you can. I don't believe that you can become a writer um, developed to your full potential if you don't read. And I mean read everything. I'm quite a Democrat when it comes to that, um, from comic books to uh, the Iliad. Read whatever strikes your interest. Don't let anyone tell you that you're too young to understand it. I think that uh, one of the things, disservices we can do for our young people is to assume that they cannot read something because it's above their level. If they want to read it, that desire is going to let them understand it. And if they don't understand it, they'll stop. And I think that one of the things that was essential in my development, such a lucky break, was that I started to read Shakespeare when I was 10 and 11. It was a book, it was the thickest book on the shelf in my parents' house, and I wanted to read the biggest book. And so I started to read this. No one said to me, you can't do this. I didn't understand a lot of things, but there were a lot of things that I did understand because I wanted to read it so badly. Who, who decides who becomes Poet Laureate of the United States? And as a part of the, another question from this uh, person, do most of your poems take so long to gel? So first. <laughs> the first part of that question, the Poet Laureate is chosen by the Librarian of Congress who assembles a group of, of um, critics and writers from all over the country to, inf to advise him on this. It's a bit of a mysterious process. I did not know I was being considered until I got a phone call one day and, uh, in May and they asked me if I'd like to be Poet Laureate. So, uh, and I'm still trying to figure out who put them up to that. Uh, that's how the Poet Laureate is chosen. Uh, the second part of the question, Thank goodness most of my poems do not take that long to gel. There are some, the very, very few, which can happen almost overnight. And when I say overnight, I mean the first reasonable presentation of the poem happens very quickly. But I believe that you cannot sit under a tree and wait for inspiration to strike because inspiration or the muse as she flies by will look and see that you're lolling under a tree and will say, I'll go someplace where there's, someone's already working. <laughs> so um, it takes usually, I, there's no usual time, but uh, I would say generally a, a few months. And I tend to work on many poems at once so that I don't get depressed as the poem takes so long to, to gel. In your book, Thomas and Beulah, there are many vivid details. Did you get these firsthand from your grandparents or secondhand sources? That's a wonderful question. I, my grandparents had both died by the time I began writing Thomas and Beulah, but both of them were great storytellers and had told us many stories when we were young, and, uh, and sometimes over and over. So there are lots of details from those stories. When I began writing the poems in Thomas and Beulah, which is a book about my grandparents, um, the first part is told from my grandfather's point of view and the second from my grandmother's point of view. When I began writing those poems, I realized that, that there was so much I didn't know. And it was a combination of research again. I really went back to books to find out what their lives were like in Akron, Ohio in the 1920s 
But I also talked with my mother, who was wonderful. I talked with her. I was living in Arizona at the time, and we spoke every Saturday when the rates were cheap. Um, and I told her I was writing poems about her parents. She never asked to see a poem, uh, though I was prepared with a few safe ones, I thought, <laughs> to show her. Not that there was anything risque in them, but it is a very tricky matter when you are talking, uh, when you are presuming to, to speak for someone else. And at first, she tried to focus. She asked me what I wanted to know, but I didn't know what I wanted to know. And so she, we ended up just reminiscing. She told me about her childhood. Uh, sometimes I would ask a question. If I asked her suddenly, what color was the scarf? She didn't say, why, why do you want to know? She simply said, uh, you know, I think it was yellow or I think it was blue. And then there were things I made up. <laughs> Can you, should you, separate our artistic and aesthetic elements from politics, racial, and ethnic elements? You can. I don't think one should. I think that a poem has several obligations to itself and to the audience that it will reach. I think a poem has, first of all, the obligation to be honest, but I say honest to itself, which means that sometimes honesty is not biographical truth, but an emotional truth. In other words, I'm not fretting the details, whether a scarf is yellow or blue, but whether the moment is, has been honestly looked at and recreated. That's the first thing. That necessarily implies um, moral honesty, I think, and, and political honesty, and which gets us to the next part, the, a poem, any art form, I think, has the responsibility to engage its medium as much as possible. With poetry, it is words, but it's also silence. This is what you use to make a poem. With painting, it's, it's, it's color and absence of color, and it's also the surface of the paint. In other words, to pay as much attention to how something is said, the meaning of every word, the sound of every word, the sound of the silence is at the end of the line. All of these things go towards shaping one's emotional response to the poem. Even the fact that a line may be very long and may take a long time to say affects us because then we'll have to take a deep breath at the end of the line. All of those things are important to get to the honesty of the poem and the moral truth. When I say that these things um, can be separated but should not be separated, when one has a program to get across in a poem or any other art form, a message, and allows the artistic integrity to be compromised simply for the message, then I think it ceases to become a poem or that art form. It becomes a hybrid of sorts. This is not to say that, that a political movement or a, a political expression is not important, but if you're writing a poem, you're writing a poem and you owe it to be truthful to both ends of the spectrum. Here's a person who says, I recently heard your story, Secondhand Man, on NPR's Selected Shorts and was captivated. Do you plan to write any more fiction? Thank you. Uh, I do plan to write more fiction. I've, I've written a 
some stories which have been collected in, in a book, Fifth Sunday, and Secondhand Men was taken from that. And I've written a novel as well. Uh, writing short stories is, um, when I write short stories, I can't write poems, so I have to decide. I, I can't do them both at the same time. I can't go from one to another. The timing is slightly different, but I did enjoy writing them because short stories, like poems, are short. And <laughs> which means that every single word counts, and the concentration of dramatic energy is it's very, very important. Um, so I, I plan to be writing more short stories. Here are three profound questions from the children. First one is this. How do you know when you've got a good poem? Oh, this is the hardest question in the universe. Thank you, children. Um, Wallace Stevens said that a poem is never finished. It's abandoned in despair. <laughs> there is a lot of truth to that. I, I guess one really, you may have an inkling that this is pretty good. But I don't know if we really know ever if a poem is great. Time is one thing. Uh, I, if, when I finish a poem, I will often put it aside, read it um, a week later, not even look at it, and then read it a month later, just to see if it wasn't the flush of that first you know, moment of getting it on the page, to see if it's still um, works for me. And I, I don't think there's a single poem of mine that, that there isn't a word I wish I could change. I mean, there's always something that I think is not quite right, which is fine. It just keeps me writing on. But I don't know if you can ever tell if it is great. I'll leave it up to the critics, and they disagree, so well, there we are. I don't write in order to write a great poem. I write because I have to, I think because I need to get it out, because I love working with language, and because if it can touch somebody else, then uh, it's communication at the deepest level. That's why I write. How did you become interested in poetry? I became interested in poetry because I was reading a lot when I was young, when I was your age and even younger, and I read an anthology of, it was called the Anthology of Best Loved Poems, I believe, um, edited by Louis Untermeyer. I picked up the book because it had a purple and gold cover. I'm very color-oriented, as you can tell. And I browsed through the poems. What I loved about poems was how they made the language sing. It's the most amazing expression of something that it seems that Humans are one of the few species on this earth that can do communication through a, a language. And that something written on the page could actually sing out at you and whisper at you and do all of these things was magic. That's how I became interested in poetry um, above all the other written forms. And finally, on this uh, series, it assumes that poetry helps your troubles. How does it help? Ah. I think that one of the most difficult things for human beings to do is to work through our troubles and to articulate them. And when we don't articulate them, when we do not 
cannot find a way to communicate them to others and to explain exactly how we feel, to a certain extent we feel alone. We feel alone and we feel lost in that emotion. Now, if you're happy, you usually don't care. Uh, if you are sad or if there's something that's troubling you, there's nothing more empowering, I think, than to share that with someone else and to have them understand as precisely as possible how you feel. When I write poems, what, what helps me, two things, is, is that finally in being able to, art, to articulate as closely as I can what it is that is haunting me or bothering me helps me become less afraid of it or less depressed by it. In the case of the Parsley poem, I had to write the poem in order to come to terms with how someone could think up such a creative way to execute people. And it is a modern-day shibboleth, but I wanted to be able to imagine, um, to get inside that dictator's mind, to imagine how he came up with this. I needed to do that. It is n not comforting to come to the end of such a poem, but it does help deal with it, be able to deal with it. It becomes more graspable. And then to be able to read a poem or to have someone else read a poem and say or respond and say, yes, I understand what you mean, is, a, is an enormously uh, wonderful and warming experience. Here's one about uh, reading and versus uh, speaking poetry. Mm -hmm. Poetry is hard to read on the page, wonderful to hear aloud. How do you use speaking and reading aloud in your writing? Hmm. Well, poetry did begin as an oral art, and, um, and I believe that, that most poems should be able to speak for themselves on the page. The, the key, I'm going to digress just a little bit and just say I think that when you have difficulty reading a poem on the page, the best thing to do is to read it aloud. Uh, just read it aloud to yourself. And I mean actually read it aloud, not just whisper it, but to feel the words in your mouth and then sense, because of the sound is part of the poem. When I write poems, I try to write them in such a way that I give you indications of when to pause, when to, how much emphasis a line is supposed to have. And that's why certain lines are shorter or longer. Um, and also the sounds of words, the, so the very sound of the word. For instance, in the poem Parsley, near the end of the poem, there are lots of R's in it. The, there's in the bare room, the bright feathers arch in a parody of greenery. There are all these kind of R's that happen, which you won't notice if you hear it, and maybe even if you look at it, but if you, but if you let your ears open and if you say it in your mouth, you let it come out, then suddenly all of those R's come out and the significance of the, the key that's going to kill all those people comes out. So all of those things are inherent in the poem, and I try to think of those things when I write them. Here's a double-edged question. What, in your view, is a writer's responsibility to her readers? And conversely, what is America's responsibility to our writers? Ooh. <laughs> a writer, if a writer decides to publish their work and to, and to have other people read it, I think that the responsibility of the writer is, first of all, not to whitewash anything, not to uh, 
tamp down on emotions because they seem to be maybe not quite appropriate. I believe that if we have an emotion, to deny it only allows it, if it's a negative emotion or something like that, to deny it only allows it more of an opportunity to grow in the dark and to eventually um, um, take over. We have to confront our life, uh, uh, every aspect of ourselves, and a poet's obligation is, if that is part of the poem, to bring it into the poem. And to bring it into the poem in such a way, also paying attention to the discipline, the aesthetics of the art. Our country's responsibility to the poets is to listen. And that sounds very simple, but it's a lot deeper than that. We are not listening to our poets and our artists. Um, some of us are, but our government certainly isn't. And it is to, to realize that we, we can suffer from a malnutrition of the spirit just as easily as we can suffer from other kinds of, of poverty. And thank you. That to, to recognize that art is not frivolous, that it is essential to our souls, and that we have to feed our spirit as well as our bodies. And uh, that, means, that means federal um, support of the arts. Other countries do it, they're proud of it. You know, art is really, uh, Beverly Sills, the opera diva, once said that, that art is the signature of civilizations. It's what remains a, of us, it re what's what remains of our spirit more than anything else. And we have to recognize that, and I think our country needs to simply listen. How are we to understand what a poem is about if we don't know what inspired it, the story behind it? I think you can know what a poem is about even without knowing the story behind it. Um, I did today, I wanted to show you how, lo how hard it was to get to that point in the poem. And this poem is, uh, there's a note, a footnote to this poem in, in the book. But I, also, but I also think that when I wrote the poem, I wanted you to be able to understand it without knowing the historical details as well. Just from the poem itself, you understand that something is being, something is happening, that people are dying because of a word. Um, if you can let poetry wash over you like music, if we can stop thinking, ooh, I've got to get the interpretation right, <laughs> which I think is one of the reasons why many of us are afraid of poetry. If you let it wash over you like music, I do believe you, you understand it at first reading, at first hearing, um, much like you understand reading, with your elbow or something. You don't understand it with your head. You understand it with your, with your body. And then to read it again and again, um, as to live with a poem, you do begin to understand what it's about. One of the most, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell a little anecdote. Um, one of the most valuable things that happened to me um, in my life happened in ninth grade with an English teacher who uh, broke us into small groups and gave each of us a poem, didn't tell us the author, didn't tell us any background, and asked us over the course of the next two to three days to come up with an interpretation. 
and he picked the hardest things he could find, Ezra Pound, the section that, that we had had French and Greek in Greek letters and, and some English, and it was so impossible for us to translate the French or the Greek that we decided this is impossible, let's just make up something. So we began to, you know, kind of riff off of this, this poem and said, well, maybe this French word means this because it's close to the English. And we just started doing that and read it aloud and came up with our interpretation as did the other groups. And at the end, the teacher read interpretations from established critics and every single group was right on target. And it showed you that, you know, you know more than you think you know when you read a poem, you know? Here are three uh, that I think are related about your own inner uh, rejuvenation. Besides reading voraciously, how do you nurture yourself as a writer? How do you balance teaching and writing? And what influences help us pull away from chain smoking and coffee drinking and allow us to engage in that creative discipline? <laughs> Ah, the first question was? Read voraciously. Well, besides reading voraciously. How do you do, yeah, how do you nurture yourself? I go, I try to write every day. If I don't, and that means some days when I travel, I have my notebook. But I do try to go to my desk and write every day whether I have an idea or not. It is like practicing scales on the piano. You, 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 you start, you get the juices flowing by simply writing. You know, there's no other way to do it. I think also to have an a s informal group of friends who are also engaged in some artistic enterprise. They don't all have to be poets. You can even get a group of people, someone who's a painter and a photographer and a writer and a, uh, a composer, but a group, a group that agrees to meet periodically and discuss what you're doing and toss something that is still information onto the table and get help. That that helps also keep you going, keep you, you know, keeps you heading toward that day when you're going to share it. That's one thing. The um, second question was? Balancing as a writer oh, and a teacher. Well, that's the hardest, I think. Hmm. I love teaching because um, I get to talk about that which I love, which is poetry. But it is very different to talk about poetry, to be that outward, and to write. What I tried, I, I tend not to be able to write on days that I teach, so instead of driving myself crazy trying to write, I tell myself, you don't have to write today. And then if I say that, I trick my psyche sometimes, sometimes I don't, uh, into thinking, well, she doesn't want to write today, so we'll give her an idea. Um, it's, um, it's tricky, but I try to give myself that, that permission not to be sitting down at the desk every minute and writing. I do keep a notebook so that, um, you know, all, all, any ideas or observations I have are always there um, at the flick of a page. And finally, those influences in our lives that can help us pull away from the escapist or chain-smoking, coffee-drinking, mm. and allow us us to engage in the right. creative discipline. Well, I've never been a chain smoker, which is why I left that group to go look at that book, thank goodness. I really firmly believe that, that a writer does not have to be a chain smoking, drinking, crazy person in order to write. I, I think that that only, you know, that hinders the writing. 
And in many cases, of, of course, it's extremely glamorous to think of a writer as someone who walks down the street and you know, gets hit by a car because they didn't notice where the light was. And sometimes that can happen because you're lost in a line, but I don't believe that, 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 that that's helpful. Um, and I mean, I can't give you any kind of quick fix on how to escape those influences, except to say that, to recognize the fact that it is very scary to sit down and to write about what you really feel. And just acknowledge that this is incredibly um, frightening. And that, but what happens on the other end of that, to come out of that and to be able to um, touch another human being who might have had that same emotion. That's what you work for. You work for that moment. And how other, how else can you do this unless you are clear of mind, you know, and clear of heart? It's sort of like the knight who went on the vigil before they went into battle. I mean, you, you've, you've got to be clear. And, uh, but, but to recognize that um, this isn't an easy thing. No one's going to say it's an easy thing to do. Um, now just sit down and do it. There's no easy way. I think this will be our last question. In your interview with Scott Robin Robinson in the Pioneer Press uh, newspaper, you spoke about the collaboration with composers and the effect which this has on your poetry. Do you enjoy the, such collaboration and plan to pursue this creative avenue? I do enjoy collaborating with other artists, and particularly with musicians. Um, I've been an amateur musician all my life. I play cello, and then I sing um, occasionally with uh, opera, local opera groups. And so I love music. And yet, when I write poems, I don't think of them necessarily as that kind of music. It's a different kind of music. What I love about collaboration is that it pushes me to think about the words as being sung. And then it, it also stretches what I, uh, the, the own cages that I have built around myself in terms of language and what language can do. Um, it, most of the time I do tend to write a poem and then it is set to music. I don't write for a piece of music. But in the case of um, the piece which was mentioned earlier, Omoja, that was done at the Olympics, uh, I. I, I did that specifically for that occasion, and it taught me a lot about the public utterance uh, and what that can do, and also music and how that unites an entire group of people s s just simultaneously in that instant in a single note. So I love doing it, and I will continue. I want to thank on your behalf Rita Dove, our poet's voice for today at this uh, Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This hour has been enjoyed by all of us, and I want to read a message to you, Ms. Dove, from one of the children, and I think it speaks of how poetry, when it really connects, does its work. Here's somebody who wants to have you do something. I, I read one of your poems. I just want you to know that if you can come right to the Right Step Academy over on North Broadway by Hennepin County, I will really like for you to come. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Rita Dove. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.